Presidings Podcast is brought to you by Northrop Grumman. Northrop Grumman applies electromagnetic maneuver warfare to seamlessly target and combat enemy threats across any domain. By leveraging traditional spectrum-based and next-generation innovations, they're giving your forces a decisive advantage. That's why they're a leader in transformative airborne EW. To learn more, visit northropgrumman.com slash EW. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for this very special edition of the podcast is Commander Brooke Millard, the Naval Institute's Federal Executive Fellow. Brooke, welcome back to the podcast. Good morning. It's great to have you co-hosting. So I'm fresh from Holland. I was in the Netherlands for about six days, and there's actually a military connection. So my dad who was a Marine Corps aviator, was the assistant naval attache at the embassy there from 1970 to 73. So I was basically in middle school at that time. I haven't been back since, so that's 46 years. And so after years of wondering and thinking, and we finally went back, and it was an amazing spiritual journey. Went by the house that we lived in, um, down in the neighborhood of The Hague, called Scheveningen. And so saw my house and knocked on the door and the people answered and they gave us a tour. Um, so it was really, really uh, amazing. So if you've never been to Holland, have you ever been to Holland? I was in Scheveningen this summer on what? Eagle. Do we know this? I don't know. Okay. So did you go to the Coor House and all the cool places down there at the beach? No, I was only there for the sail festival. Oh, okay. Yeah. So did you go around the town? Did you have any chance to go inland? That's where I departed. That's where PCS departed. Oh. So I was only there for about two days. Oh, okay. Yeah. And you just stayed on the ship the whole time? We were working. Oh, okay. Okay. So, well, I did not know that, yeah. right? So it's an amazing place. So we spent a few days in The Hague. So the thing about Holland is Amsterdam is the capital, but... Den Haag, The Hague, is the seat of government. So that's where parliament is and so forth and so on. And uh, so that's where the embassies are, and that's why we live there. And then we spent some time in Amsterdam for a few days, which if you've never been there, it's amazing. I've heard. Very, very cool city. Um, so just got back last night, so I'm fresh from – so jet lag works in my favor. That's why I'm so awake and, and so forth. All right, well, why don't we just get right to our guests? Can you please introduce uh, who we have on the phone with us? All right, this morning we have the 13th Master Chief Petty Officer Coast Guard, Jason Vanderhayden, with us. Good morning, Master Chief. Good morning, Commander. Good to be with you. Master Chief, please give us a little bit of your bio, your background, what, what drew you to the Coast Guard, and, and what have been the high points of your career to this point? Well, thanks, Commander. I, I uh, joined the Coast Guard from Tallahassee, Florida in 1988. Uh, wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. Uh, coming out of high school, my parents recommended the the military, and uh, the Coast Guard looked like a like a good service. So I I joined out of Jacksonville, Florida, the recruiting office in Jacksonville, Florida. Went to Cape May, and then uh, first duty station was out on Long Island, New York. And then I went to uh, at the time was subsistence specialist C school, now known as culinary specialist uh, A school, excuse me, uh, A school. And then uh, from from there, I went out to Iwo Jima. And I lived uh, on the island of Iwo Jima for a year, uh, 
at the Loran station there, and I had my first and I re-enlisted for the first time on the top of Mount Sarabachi, where the Marines raised the flag, which was pretty special. Oh my gosh! And I came back. Yeah, it was, that was a, a neat re-enlistment ceremony, and then uh, came back, went to Air Station Clearwater, met my wife Amy there, and had our first uh, child, my son Tyler, there, and then we went to St. Louis. I set buoys in the river between St. Louis and Kansas City and the Missouri River, and then uh, from there uh, had my daughter. My daughter was born at Scott Air Force Base there. Uh, then we moved to Humboldt Bay, California, to Air Station Humboldt Bay. Then up to um, did a, a tour there. Then went up to Act, the Cutter Active out of Port Angeles, Washington. Did a tour there. Came down to um, came back to uh, Ponce Inlet, Florida, which is roughly Daytona Beach, really rough duty. And then <laughs> went to um, then went up to the Reliance, which was out of uh, Kittery, Maine, at Portsmouth Naval Shipyard. Then went to the Chiefs Academy, was a senior enlisted uh, academy instructor uh, at the at our Chief Petty Officer Academy, uh, made Master Chief there, went to Hawaii, uh, was the Command Master Chief for the base in Hawaii, then the Command Master Chief for our uh, Pacific Northwest, our District 13 uh, region, and then, uh, then the Pacific Area Command Master Chief, then the Deputy Commandant uh, for Mission Support Command Master Chief, and then where I was selected as the 13th Master Chief Petty Officer Coast Guard. So uh, you haven't exactly homesteaded, as we say. <laughs> Make me feel like a slug. I spent 15 years at NAS Oceana, right? Never moving, basically. Wow, we. How many times did you move, Master Chief? Or have you moved? I think that's 12, 12 or 13. And are you the first cook to be the MCPOG? Yes, I'm, I'm probably the first cook to be the senior enlisted, the service senior enlisted for any branch of the service. I, 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 I we've we've looked at it. The commandant calls me the uh, the senior cook in the military. Uh, so <laughs> he's uh, uh, I don't I'm not aware of any other cooks having been the service senior enlisted. Well, I tell you what, our the cooks on board Eagle are incredible. They're pretty impressive. And I think the cooks in the Coast Guard are quite incredible as well. I, Master Chief, I've heard that the cooks um, probably spend more time on cutters than any other rate. It is. It is by far the most underway uh, rating. And uh, th- that's one of the things we worry about is the, is the seashore ratio because it's more uh, at sea than it is at shore. So we, we're constantly, as we bring new ships online, and the new ships have different billet structures in terms of the the pay grades for the for the different ratings. We have to we have to we're constantly adjusting how we uh, you know the billet structure ashore in a sea so that we can maintain some kind of. Uh, opportunity to go come ashore and then go back to sea and go to shore and then come back to sea. So uh, it is tricky. Well, speaking of Holland, Vanderheiden is a Dutch name. Are, are you from, do you know of your Dutch lineage? I, I, I know it means of the meadow. I was in Holland a few months ago visiting our activities, uh, Europe folks there in Shenan. Uh, and, uh, you know, we had a, you know, traveling around, I stayed in Holland, and people said, "Oh, you're Dutch," and I said, "Okay." <laughs> that was about the extent of you got to do some DNA thing or something so you know your genealogy. That I, I bet yeah, it's pretty yeah. amazing because it's such a small country. Everybody has a pretty uh-huh. cool backstory. You know, your 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 great great grandfather may have been a cheese, you know, baron or something. You never know, right? right? And the Dutch were pretty famous sailors too. They did a lot of yes. you know a lot of the you know, a lot of exploration. You, know, you forget, you know, like in the 
1600s and 1700s, they were one of the major sea powers in the world, you know, a global sea power. Um, And I was reminded of that, you know, when we were touring around, looking at some of the museums and Rembrandt paintings and cool stuff like that. Um, So many of the cruise lines are based out of Holland, you know, Holland America and and, uh, uh, Norway, you know, there's a, there's a fairly substantial cruise ship industry there too. Yes. And now they're really big into wind power. I mean, the offshore wind farms are just incredible Mm -hmm. in that area. As you land at Schiphol, you can see them all over the place, not to mention windmills, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, they kind of invented wind power at some level, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So, Meshiv, what what has surprised you about, you know, what did you think you were signing up for and, and, and what have you signed up for? What are the big, big surprises over the course of your career? Well... Throughout the course of my career, the the, the Coast Guard is kind of unique in that we don't have a bench strength. Everybody in the Coast Guard is kind of in the game. And not only are you in the game, but you have to be kind of a, a, a multi-tool player. You have to be able to play different positions in the game. I I was a cook, but I was also a boarding officer. I landed, you know, I was a helicopter signals officer and a, you know, a helicopter a landing signals officer and a helicopter control officer. And I did damage control and I did a lot of things other than just cook. And just about everybody has to do that. Uh, if you go to, when you go to sea, uh, you need to be able to do many things, and uh, that's that kind of surprised me uh, that in terms of what we ask our folks to do. Uh, when I said I was setting buoys in the in the river, I literally was setting buoys in the river along with my, you know, primary duty. So we, um, you know, we, we it's a good it's a good good thing because you feel connected to the mission, you feel connected to, you know, what we're doing, uh, no matter what your job specialty, what your rating is, and I, I like that. Um, it concerns me a little bit as we become more specialized and and more technologically advanced that folks won't have the opportunity to do some of those other jobs that really make you feel like you're you're getting the mission of the Coast Guard done. You, 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 so I, I worry about that a little bit, but uh, I think uh, my biggest surprise was the the all the opportunity that I would have. And Master Chief, you you mentioned you. You were kind of a jack of all trades. You did so many different jobs on board the ships and at different units you were at. And you obviously traveled all over the Coast Guard and have been on all different areas in, in the United States, different units. Um, I know right now there's a, a push. Um, we're looking into trying to make life a little bit more geographic, geographically stable for uh, Coast Guardsmen. Um, what, what's your take on that? How do you feel how it might be a pro and a con, I guess, with right with what we have right now? So I I think that that's a good thing. Um, we've we've changed kind of the the the, the model of our, of the way we home port ships. We used to we used to you know having a single ship home port was fairly common. I mean, uh, or or and then what we decide as we've evolved that now we're having multiple ship home ports and we're trying to build out you know kind of bigger more more it looks like a lot like a navy base where you can. You can go from one ship and then and then have shore duty uh, at that unit and then go back to another ship and then go back to shore. I think that provides a lot of stability for families. I think it's uh, you know my son went to four different high schools 
Uh, and then my daughter, I think it was worse. She went to one high school for three years and then her fourth year, I moved her. Uh, so her senior year, she had to make all new friends. I think, um, you know, we recruit Coasties, but we retain families. And the way to retain a family is to provide them some stability, to give spouse employment a chance, uh, to get the, the kids, uh, friends and, you know, able to play sports and do, you know, if you go to church, your church activities, all those types of things. As we've updated our, our, our home porting models and, and try to put more people in, in, singular home ports and more ships and, and singular and, and home ports, it uh, it's given the opportunity for more geographic stability. The other thing, too, is we used to, uh, on our officer and enlisted uh, promotion and advancements, we looked at, uh, you know, geographic diversity. You know, that was something that was actually factored in. And if you had been in one place for a long period of time, it was considered a negative. Uh, we've, we've moved well past that now. In fact, uh, you know, we encourage people to, 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 to look for opportunities to stay, stay in one place. The assignment officers have actually uh, been given guidance to look for opportunities for no-cost transfers, for fleet ups, and, and uh, you know, opportunities to save money in the, uh, in the, in the PCS transfer account. And, um, you know, it's uh, it's 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 become it's it's a good thing. That's I think that's good for retention, and uh, so we've we've kind of changed that up. So if you stay, I mean, I think you could go to Seattle and stay there for a very long time. Charleston, uh, South Carolina, is going to be a huge base for us. Alameda is a a big spot. Uh, Boston used to be. Boston's we're changing up the way Boston looks a little bit, but um, you know we're we are. Uh, We've evolved that that model, so I think that geographic stability is a good thing. I'm excited about it, and uh, I think it is the future. So, also joining the conversation from I think he's down in Norfolk is uh, our own retired Fleet Master Chief Paul Kingsbury, the co-director of outreach and the editor of the latest edition of the Chief's Guide and the forthcoming Petty Officers Guide and other things that the Naval Institute Press is putting out. Paul, how are you down there? Good. Busy, doing a lot of engagement, uh, but uh, glad I could dial in and join in. Yeah, thanks for joining us uh, in the middle of your busy schedule. Are, are you, in fact, down in Norfolk? Is that where you are? I am. So today at 11 o'clock, I'll be attending, uh, I'll be heading over to U.S. Fleet Forces headquarter, headquarters. Uh, they host an executive leadership symposium, and that's a course that prepares command mass chiefs um, to be assigned uh, to work for flag officers. So it's a, uh, you know, uh, about a three-day course uh, on education to familiarize them with uh, the new way they're going to wield influence and uh, integrating into a flag staff. So your old stomping grounds. It is, actually, yes. So I'll see uh, a lot of many old peers. And then uh, tonight I'm heading on a flight, heading up to Newport, and then I'll be engaging with uh, Senior Enlisted Academy Class 226 on the Navy side in, uh, you know, sp- sponsored student program and presenting the uh, MMC Richard McKenna Award for uh, Excellence in Writing. Fantastic. So um, we have Mick Pog here. Anything you would like to ask ask him uh, right up front? Yeah. So um, so good morning. How's it going, Jason? Good. Good morning, Paul. Thanks again for the opportunity to uh, to come and talk with us. But uh, so one thing I'm always asked. Uh, we had Mick Pond Russ Smith on, um, and obviously, you know, one thing I was taught uh, was, hey, when you're in an office or a position like this, what's the one thing that you can do or bring that no one else can do? And I think in these positions, one of the, the clearly unique things is your opportunity to testify 
uh, in front of, uh, you know, a variety of venues in front of Congress. So can you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, what that experience has been like for you and how you prepare for that? I th- that was probably the most uh, uh, most the, the experience that I look forward to the most was uh, the opportunity to tell our elected leaders about the great work that our coasties are doing around the world. And, you know, we are getting a lot of great new ships and, and they're really taking care of us from, you, you know, a, 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 an asset standpoint. We're getting new river tenders. We're getting uh, new aircraft. We're, you know, getting a lot of new capability uh we need to the the training and the support and all the all the you know operations and support money that goes with that we we kind of need to be sure that we're keeping pace with that so that we can continue to run those assets we can train our folks uh to use them and uh keep people we we rely on an apprentice journeyman master growth model in the coast guard and and most services where um we bring folks in, we train them, and then we get them to another. We send them to more schools. We train them to a, to a ne- another higher level, and then we get them to a mastery level, and then they they uh, they teach those below them. And uh, having the ability to, to to maintain that and to support that uh, that model is 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 crucially important. And I think uh, sometimes that that's just kind of presumed that that we're that we're able to do that but we actually are under pressure our the the maintenance costs for the new assets are higher than the than the maintenance costs for the legacy assets and we have to make sure that our budgets continue to reflect the those added costs so we're not robbing from other areas of the organization to pay for uh just to keep our assets running copy so how's that uh, yeah. so that experience uh, interacting with congress uh, what was was that something that uh, was the biggest surprise that you felt uh, prepared, or how do you prepare for that going into the office and uh, and the interactions, frankly, with the I guess you would call it the policy level, right? The secretaries and the undersecretaries. Sure. So you know you, you get a lot of you get a lot of advice. So there's a, we have some we excellent staffs here. We have a mix of civilian and military staff members that that uh, give you a lot of coaching, and they they kind of talk. To you and tell you how how best to communicate that need without jeopardizing some other priority that we have. Everything you know, there's a lot of offsets that go on uh, when you ask for one thing and you're trying to stay within a top line number. That you know, sometimes that that's pulled from somewhere else, and you have to be careful about what you say and how you say it. Uh, and uh, but we have tremendous support on Capitol Hill. The, the Coast Guard is is loved. I mean, we last night uh, was the Coast Guard birthday on Capitol Hill. I, I'm not sure why we celebrate that in September, but we do uh, every year. Uh, but it was a, a recognition of the Coast Guard, and we had tremendous turnout from many, many um, congressional leaders that, that came. And they, uh, you know, all of them, uh, just resounding praise for all the great work that we're doing. Um, now, they all have, you know, as, as a, political philosophy right now is is pretty divided in in uh in Capitol Hill so you have uh um folks that think different ways but uh but I think the coast guard enjoys you know solid bipartisan support from both sides of the aisle on on you, you know all the great work that we're doing it's just um you know prioritizing what we do against other mission sets and other needs for the nation uh and making sure that we uh, that I'm I I uh, you, you know, portray a powerful argument that, uh, you know, kind of tells why we need to, the the support that we need. So you don't feel like you're getting dragged into a political lane just by 
walking around the planet being Mick Pog at all? You know, they're, they're pretty good. You know, I think most of the most of the congressional leaders recognize the difference between my what my job is and what the you know, what the commandant's job is or what other admiral's jobs are. They they understand that my job is to advocate for the workforce and to, to just kind of tell the story of what the workforce is doing. I, um, you know, I, I don't have to uh, I'm not in there trying to, you know, reprioritize their uh, what, what's important to them. Uh, I'm just, I'm just trying to advocate for the Coast Guard and, and I, I think they, they appreciate that. Uh, so the, I, I get treated, I think I get treated very well. Uh, I've, I've never been into a congressional member's office where I felt like I was, you know, pitted against one side or the other or put on the spot. They, they take care of me pretty good. That That's a real luxury <laughs> during testimony. Um, so You've served during the Department of Transportation days and the transition into the DHS days. Have have you seen a major shift in terms of how the Coast Guard operates? Is this more effective? Do you miss the old days? How how does what's that all about? So it's funny you say that. So when I joined, um, our softball team at the Smallwood Station was the SAR dogs, the search and rescue dogs. You know, we were, you know, we prided ourselves on on SAR and search and rescue, and we did some law enforcement. Uh, then uh you know as we as the as as the needs of the nation evolved in terms of more security uh and opportunities to uh interdict drugs before they come to the country and to you know to find our our roles with our unique title 14 authorities uh we we evolved 911 was you know obviously a seminal moment for the nation but it was also big for the coast guard not just in our in our eventual move in 2003 to uh department of homeland security but to uh to, you know our missions in terms of ports and waterways coastal security maritime domain awareness and you know our 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 partnerships and relationships with DOD all those things grew uh they grew exponentially and a lot of that was because of our law enforcement authorities and and we you know we have the ability to 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 exercise some title 10 authority when necessary some title 50 authority when necessary some title 32 with our reserve force and then obviously our law enforcement our unique law enforcement uh capabilities so um you, you know we we and then i think that kind of woke up the some of the you know, a lot of our elected leaders would say, hey, we can use the Coast Guard to push down into Central and South America and try to prevent a lot of these drugs uh, from coming to the United States, uh, you know, before they get to our far before they get to our border. And so uh, after 9-11 and, and our transition into Homeland Security, now we, we interdict more drugs than all law enforcement agencies combined, the Coast Guard or cocaine. We interdict, we interdict more cocaine then, then all the if you added up all the police forces in the country, we we do more. Uh, so it's uh, um, it's yeah, a, General it's, Kelly it's, made a nice point on that, right? He was talking about what a police department might consider in New York, you know, Manhattan, a, a big drug bust, and you know they they talk in terms of of grams, and you guys talk in terms of tons. Mm-hmm. Um, so he he really yes. did uh, emphasize that fact as well. Yeah, that's a uh, you know that's a Tuesday afternoon for us. Um, <laughs> you know we we uh, we 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 have some great folks, and they and and we've so we've also we're a member of the intelligence community, so we get we get to capitalize. We we we've gone to intelligence driven operations instead of just kind of a a response. We actually um, we we use 
a lot of intelligence now to drive our operations. We're a lot more effective and efficient. When I was on the Cutter Active in 1998, uh, before 9-11, we simply sailed down into the Eastern Pacific and we got to our box that Giant of South assigned us and we just kind of steamed around our box and hoped and prayed that somebody would drive past us so that we could make a bust. Uh, you know, it was a very, uh, it was, it was not very good and not very uh, efficient. And now, uh, we don't, there's not a lot of, uh, wasted motion down there. Those ships are, we, we, we have a pretty good idea of what's going on and what's moving. And we, uh, do a pretty good job of getting our ships in front of that stuff. So, um, and that's that's working with DEA. That's working with uh, Customs and Border Protection. That's working with um, DOD. Everybody. It's a team effort for sure. General Kelly even said uh, last two weeks ago that we need more Coast Guard because we're so good at what we do down there. Um, one way we can interdict more drugs is if we had more Coast Guard ships and more Coast Guard, Guard personnel down there. Yeah, and, and it's not just about the drugs. It's about the revenue source for these transnational criminal organizations that are, you know, uh, destabilizing some of these countries uh, and and corrupting these kind. Of, and it, it, I, it it's kind of funny. It, it, it's not funny, but it's uh, it's it's almost sad actually that you know the folks that are leaving these Central American countries. They love their country. They they love being Hondurans. They love being El Salvadorans. They love being Nicaraguans. But they but it's dangerous. So it, these these criminal organizations are uh, making it very dangerous to live there, and so they're 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 leaving because of that. And so if we can get more Coast Guard and 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 put you know put a hurting on these these transnational criminal organizations, we can help uh, you know stabilize you know help help to stabilize some of these countries and uh, you know hopefully make it a a place that they want to stay instead of wanting to leave. Right. Yeah. Again, General Kelly made a very clear point of saying the root cause of the immigration problem is the drug war. Paul, mm -hmm. go ahead with your question. You know, one of our mantras, we have several at the Naval Institute, you know, is the dare to rethink, speak and write. So I'm always interested in uh, what senior leaders are reading and what you're thinking about. And then uh, what are your thoughts on the value of organizations such as the uh, U.S. Naval Institute? I tell you what I just read was your CPO guide. Uh, that that was fascinating. That was, I uh, you know we we run our chief's call to initiation differently than the Navy does. We actually run two a year. We run them for a sh much shorter period of time, and so I have the opportunity to deliver uh, many CCTI speeches. And I'll tell you, I give you full credit, Paul. I I. I look through your CPO guide and I take notes and I help craft my speeches through your CPO guide. So I want to put in a plug for that. And I'm very excited for the, the Coast Guard version of that and the Petty Officer Guide. Um, very much looking forward to that and helping out with that. Um, I read, uh, you know, on my desk right now, I've, I've got uh, I've got the uh, Defense Intelligence Agency's China Military Power, uh, Modernizing a Force to Fight and Win. And then, uh, so, uh, you know, looking at China and, and how that looks. And then um, I've also got something on Russia here, too. Uh, just trying to uh, – what I like, Paul, is reading things that are going to help me prepare the Coast Guard for what the workforce needs five years from now, ten years from now. As a, as a senior enlisted leader, I'm, I believe my goal, and I, 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 I feel confident that my goal is to – 
coach, tell the commandant where I think we need to go as an organization to be ready to meet the nation's needs in five years. We, we operate, you know, as you know, uh, budget cycles we operate. We're, we're already formulating the 2022 budget. Uh, that'll be the last budget of my tenure here. And before I leave, I'll be working on the 2024 budget. Uh, so we operate years in advance. And, and my job is to look at what the nation's going to need and then make sure that the Coast Guard is preparing the workforce to meet the needs of the nation. And uh, so I have to be you know, constantly up on what's, what, what the future trends are and what we're going to need to do to position the workforce there. So, uh, just, a, just a few things that I'm reading right now. Um, I, uh, uh, I'm always got a, I've always, usually got a leadership book, uh, somewhat handy and I've got, uh, uh, we, we, the Coast Guard was just awarded, um, the OSS gold medal, uh, for our work back, uh, in World War II. And I, Patrick O'Donnell gave me this book called The First Seals, The Untold Story of Forging America's Most Elite Unit. And it's, uh, uh, ironically, the OSS, when they recruited their first kind of frogmen, they ca- they came to the Coast Guard and they they pulled some of our coasties and brought them over and taught them some, you know, the tactics. So I, I, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna go at peril here and say some of the first seals were, uh, were came from the Coast Guard. So we uh, uh, I'm reading uh, I've just started reading his book. So. Amazing. Yeah, so out the window goes all the jokes about, you know, minimum height requirements and brown water. (laughs) Oh, cut that out, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) All good and fun. All good fun. Yeah. So with that, Master Chief, what are the biggest challenges to Coast Guard readiness today? The fast response cutter uh, and the national security cutters are very expensive to maintain. So our our 110-foot patrol boats, uh, the the cost to run those per op hour is about – $1,400. $1,400. So, so $1,400 for every hour that the 110 is underway. The cost per op hour for a fast response cutter is almost $3,000 per op hour. So you're talking that's twice the cost just to operate that particular cutter. Then the national, the, the 378, our 378 foot cutter, the cost per op hour there is roughly $7,500 per op hour. And the cost to operate a, a, a national security cutter is almost double at twenty eight thousand. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, twenty eight thousand dollars per op hour. So the, those those added costs just to operate the fleet that we have, uh, you know, are, are kind of pulling us down in other areas. So we're we're having to find ring every efficiency out of every program in order to keep doing what we're doing to provide current services. And whenever you wring efficiencies out of things, it, it, it just makes things naturally more, uh, I believe, uh, a little more difficult. You know, you, you, uh, our, our force comm training, our training budget is under pressure. Uh, some of our work-life programs have, uh, you know, we've been having to, to prioritize things that I wish we didn't have to prioritize. So um, also blended retirement is going to change the retention model of the of the military uh just get, getting folks to uh to 10 years doesn't mean you got them to 20 anymore we're also providing some off ramps for people the gi bill is a tremendous off ramp the the credential we're going to we're all all the services are working on credentialing programs that are going to give the workforce off ramps so you know retaining the talent that we have will be a little more challenging and so we need to 
uh, look at leadership development and people need to People have to, they're going to have to want to stay in the Coast Guard. It's not going to be a financial decision one way or the other because I think that's the financial decision will be to probably go find a civilian job. Uh, but if you, if you love coming to work, it doesn't really, the pay is almost secondary. And so we need to be sure that the Coast Guard is someplace that's, uh, uh, our folks love come to, coming to work. They love what they do. They feel connected to what we're doing. And, uh, and I think that's going to be the retention model of the future. Well, that takes leadership. Uh, people need to feel like their leaders care about them, that they're being developed, that they they have leaders that they look up to and see as role models and they want to be like. Those are the – that's kind of the – that's, in my opinion, that's the retention model of the future. Bonuses, you can stroke checks all day for people, but uh, – that that will not get you where you need to be and potentially causes some behavior that maybe you don't even want. So um so I I leaders you know being able to to retain the workforce is uh is going to be key and to do that we have to be able to provide them schools, we have to make them feel like they're growing into their jobs and that they they have good leaders that they can look up to. So very long-winded answer but I'm uh that's kind of where I'm at. Well, I feel like we must be doing something right. I've heard that the military in general, and the Coast Guard in particular, is the most trusted and respected organization in the U.S. government today. Uh, can you speak to why folks in Washington might think that? You know, we get we do a lot with 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 a little, uh, and I think even though even though the Department of Defense budget is very high, people realize that the that the the safety and security they provide in our way of life. I think uh, we do a pretty good job of uh, making society and, and the civilians aware of uh, some of the, the challenges that we face for the future, and the, the U.S. military is, uh, is our protection against those challenges. The Coast Guard, we, we do a lot of good good work. We, we save lives. We protect the waterways. We, uh, you know, we provide, you know, home game security and we, we prevent drugs or in particular cocaine from coming to our country. And, uh, you know, we, we facilitate commerce, you know, all the, you know, all, all the buoys, all the, you know, all the navigation, safety of navigation and, you know, everything that's on your, on the, on the shelves at Walmart, well, not everything, but a lot of the things that are on the shelves of Walmart came to us by sea, and that doesn't happen if we're not doing our job. So, um, so I think that there's a the the I think the the public kind of intuitively knows how, how what a great deal we are, and they appreciate that. Yeah, and the disaster relief piece as well as it seems like the hurricanes each year are getting more and more intense. Category four, category five. Uh, Coast Guard Academy event last year had a panel of basically senior enlisted and junior officers talking about their sea stories, if you will, about disaster relief. And it was a huge eye-opener for me because that's kind of like your guy's green ink. And so your average, you know, fairly maybe been in the Coast Guard for five to ten years has had some disaster relief experience that is really, really impressive in terms of the talent and courage required to get that job done and eye-opening in terms of the, the places they've been in, the situations they've been in. Oh, I can't believe I missed that. Thank you, Ward, for for for, for mentioning that. Absolutely, the contingency response, the hurricane responses, disaster response has been huge, and uh, that is absolutely a money maker for us. And and you know, following uh, the Irma, Maria, and Harvey, 
you know, the president was, you know, one of our biggest fans, and it's always helpful to have the, the president as your fan. So, um, you know, the Coast Guard brand was really raised after those, uh, those storms in Matthew and Florence were equally bad, and, and in Dorian this year um, hit North Carolina pretty hard. So you were talking about hardware priorities and, and basically the cutter situation. Uh, the On the manpower front, how are you feeling? Are you getting the right people in the door? Are you hitting the right numbers? And then at the mid-career, are these the referent leaders that uh, that we're talking about? That Because you, you hit the nail on the head. It's not about the money. No, you know, I didn't stay in as long as I did. I know Paul didn't, and, and, and Brooke doesn't do what she does because of the money. Um, but I will tell you, we heard, we were just out at the tailhook convention and, and talking to the carrier aviators out there. And sort of anecdotally, we hear that there's a, a phenomenon that could affect retention in terms of who's screening for command. And then once you have command, do you have the authority that you thought you would have or have your subordinates been weaponized around the auspices of HR and other sorts of things like that? So how are you feeling with that dynamic as you travel around uh, the Coast Guard? Yeah, you know, <laughs> that's a really good point, Ward. Uh, so I, my, my, what we're doing as a Coast Guard is, uh, you know, we're trying to recruit a diverse uh, workforce. Twenty. So roughly, I think jammers would tell you, roughly 27% of the 18 to 24-year-old population is recruitable. And so if you if you if you think, if you look at it and say, well, women make up slightly more than half of the population of the United States, you, you better be able to recruit women. If you can't recruit women, you can't retain women. You're going to be, you're, you're going to be in trouble. You're not going to be able to, you're not going to be able to get the number of people that you need just to get the mission done. So we're trying to, we're trying to recruit a diverse workforce. And then on top of that, you've got all your, all your different ethnicities and, and, uh, and, and backgrounds. And you want, you want to, be able to be, you want to be attractive to all of those people. And to be attractive, they need to see people that kind of look like them, successful people in the organization that look like them. Uh, and they say, okay, I, I want a role model. I want to be like this person. And, and you can recruit to that. But if you don't, if you don't have people when they get in that feel included, if, if you don't have a sense of inclusion within your workforce, you can't keep it. They won't stay. They'll go find some place where they do feel included. Uh, so, what we're uh, what we're working on right now heavily is uh, is making working on a sense of inclusion to make everybody feel like they are important in the organization, they feel valued, and that they they have they're 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 critical to our success. That's that's the way we want to make everybody feel. And then uh, and the recruiters have tried very hard. Uh, they're working hard to get the the. The, to reach the goals that, that we've set for them in terms of diversity recruiting, and uh, and uh, you know we're, we're they're they're doing everything they can with the with the budget that they have uh, to do that. Then uh, once you get in the, the sense of inclusion, if people feel valued, they feel respected, they I think some of these HR challenges and some of these uh, you know uh, you know. People, when people don't feel like their voice is being heard, they will talk loud enough until their voice is heard. And sometimes that's uh, not really, <laughs> not not really what you want. So, uh, so what you want to do is commands are going to have to be creative in terms of meeting with their workforce and you know trying to trying to 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 get a sense of what's 
you know, what their needs are, what their challenges are, and then, and then I, you know, identify those and try to work to solve them. Now, the chief's mess is going to be huge in that. Commands really need to rely on their chief's mess, and the chief's messes need to be engaged. Uh, that's the one thing that I'm pushing on our chief's mess right now is, you know, be engaged with your people. Let them know how important they are. You know, try to talk to them about what what their needs are and what they what they want, and then uh, you know just make them feel valued. If people feel valued, a lot of times some of those other problems take care of themselves. Uh, you know, we're just you know that's uh, you know we get so busy these days that some c- commands uh, maybe don't have the time or, or or unable to to get around to meet their people and to understand what the what their problems are, and then. Um, Pretty soon, those people take the problems outside the unit, and then the and then it makes the command look bad. So I, I don't, uh, you know, before they even have an opportunity to to fix it. So I, I I'm not saying that that's good or bad. Sometimes you might need to take the the problem outside the unit, but uh, you know, you'd like to have the opportunity to resolve that in house at first, for sure. So I guess the bottom line is, you feel like commands do have all the tools to exercise leadership in your military mind. I think I think it's uh, what what's happening now is with technology. There's so much oversight ability. So for us, like for us, we have uh, you know we have to do all, we have to enter all our maintenance tasks into a into a software system, and then those if you do it if you if you if you're short, all your bosses can see it. So they know they know what your what your overdue maintenance is, and if you and we have uh, what we call Coast Guard Business Intelligence. So uh, we it's a it's a IBM Cognos program that tells every it tells you know you know supervisory commands can look at their subordinate commands and see what training their people are lacking, and so commands now are so involved in, you know, making sure that they're, everybody's in the green, uh, in terms of readiness and then all their maintenance is being done. And, you know, the, the, the ships that I go, when I go visit my ships, they say, you know, I'd almost rather be at sea because it's life is easier. It's so hard. You know, there's so much work to be done when you're in port. They just don't get much time off and they're working really hard. Uh, and, uh, it's, 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 it's critical for commands to, Look at okay. This maintenance can wait. We need a morale day. We need to we need to take care of our people. We need to get together as a team and go have a you know some sort of team building activity, or we need to have a sports day or something. And the maintenance can wait. But but it just depends on what you prioritize in terms of what your command philosophy is going to be. Is it going to be get all the maintenance done, get all the training done, or is it going to be you know cohesion of the crew and you know, I'll manage my boss and explain to them why we're a little behind on maintenance. You know, those are just just decisions that, you know, good commands, they know how to make them and they know how to keep their, their crews tight and they know how to make everybody feel valued. Uh, but it is an art. And, uh, and you know, that's why, <laughs> that's why the good ones rise to the top. I think that's a great point, too. I think, uh, you know, we're hearing that across the Navy side as well, similar pressures, you know, with readiness and certifications and um, um, pressure that that puts on your average fleet sailor or chief petty officer to get things done. But I think it also speaks to the uh, the nature of the supported supporting relationship, right? So just because I'm at the ISIC level or I'm, you know, your, your command above, when I see that stoplight chart turn yellow or red, perhaps the first question shouldn't be, 
you know, what are they doing wrong? Perhaps the question should be, what can I do to help turn that green? That is so true. That is so true. But but as a command, you don't want to ever you won't want people to see that. But there's some value in actually. So we try. We we have this 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 uh, thing called the curse of semper paratus. So we're we're all you know we we we'll do everything we can to be always ready. Uh, it, it, if it means work until all hours of the night, if it means working weekends, if it no matter what it, it takes, uh, we will be ready. And, uh, so they call it the curse of Semper Paratus. And, and sometimes that, uh, it's, it, it, it burns people out. It, it, it creates some, uh, some challenge, it creates its own set of challenges. Yes, you're ready to perform the mission, but maybe, maybe possibly the, your, your supervisory commands asking too much and maybe they need to say, Hey, how can we help? And, and, uh, uh, potentially having that light turn red might not be a bad thing. It might highlight a problem, and, uh, but we just don't like to we don't like to do that. Yeah. Well, you you nailed it, Paul. When you talk about when the supporting feels like they're the supported, that's when the problems begin, sort of uh, atmospherically. And I think the other point you're making, uh, Master Chief, that that really resonates with me is these days with technology uh, and real time reporting, I can be at my desktop at HQ and not have to go to the unit and pull a binder out of a work center to find out what your status is absent you doing, you know, periodic reporting. So there is this constant and persistent pressure to be in the green. And that translates yep. into too much op tempo and not enough purse tempo. I agree with you a hundred percent. And, and that's something that, you know, I was in New Zealand not too long ago and I was meeting with the New Zealand Navy and they, they'll take one ship and just lay it up for, they'll just say, this ship is not, not sailing this year. The crew is going to, they'll, they'll go temporary duty to other, other units to, to keep their currencies up. But th this ship's going to stay at home port this year and they're not going to get underway. And so, and they do maintenance on it. They kind of take the, it's like almost a sabbatical, if you will. And they, you know, it, it, I was, surprised like man that's a good idea the other thing too that's interesting with the new zealand navy is they did away with their retirement plans so they no longer have a retirement plan uh you do 20 years in the new zealand navy you get a handshake thank you for your service and that's it and uh they and and so they do a lot of leadership training they do a lot of 360 you know 360 peer review you know reviews uh and everybody understands how their behavior affects those around them both up and down the chain of command and they don't really have a retention problem you know you can leave the New Zealand Navy you can submit a memo and in 3 weeks you can be out and and so if they have a a bad leader uh it can it can send people running pretty quickly and they they can't they can't handle that because they can't put enough people through their basic training fast enough. So they really pay attention to leadership. And um, I think they pay attention to purse tempo. They pay, they pay attention to, you know, all the things that affect the crew because they, they don't, they don't have a retirement plan. So, you know, there's nothing keeping you there unless you like coming to work and you enjoy what you're doing and you feel like it's something sustainable that you can do for a long time. Yeah. I mean, that's a fascinating idea right i mean I'm, there's two of us on the yeah. in the conversation who don't like the idea that there wouldn't be any retirement but uh yeah uh, but that's that you know i i don't think it sent it didn't keep me in you know sort of a oh by the way when you got to the point where you could retire um but certainly you bring up a good point with blended retirement and the gi bill 
Um, and I think, you know, Paul, we need to put a pin in that idea. Maybe we should do a show just on that phenomenon and how is it playing out. Um, we had Commander Brendan Stickles uh, talk about the what was blended retirement some months ago on the podcast. But what's the net effect now in terms of retention um, and recruiting, right? Uh, that's, a, that's You bring up an interesting point with that, uh, uh, Master Chief. So we're running out of time. Master Chief, any final thoughts? Well, I just appreciate the opportunity. I think uh, dialogue like this, uh, talking about the the issues that are going to face the military in the future, and what, uh, in it for for me, what the senior enlisted role is in that, and then uh, having thought leaders like yourselves at USNI uh, publish this and and give everybody a chance to to read and to think about it and to. Uh, you know, have, you know, cooler talk or whatever you want to call it. This is, these, these are how we get the, the best ideas up to leadership and you inspire a lot of that thought. And I, I want to say thanks and thank you for the opportunity to talk to you this morning. Well, thank you very much. Our guest has been the 13th Master Chief Petty Officer of the Coast Guard, Jason Vander Hayden. Thank you for coming to the show today and thank you for your decades of service. Well, thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Ward. Paul, thank you very much for the opportunity. And Commander Millard, I, I'll look forward to seeing you at headquarters sometime soon. Thanks, Master Chief. All right, Master Chief. Take care. All right. All right. Bye. All right. That'll do it for this episode of the podcast. We'll see you again next time. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. Sydney's podcast is brought to you by Northrop Grumman. Northrop Grumman applies electromagnetic maneuver warfare to seamlessly target and combat enemy threats across any domain. By leveraging traditional spectrum-based and next-generation innovations, they're giving your forces a decisive advantage. That's why they're a leader in transformative airborne EW. To learn more, visit northropgrumman.com EW. EW.